You know, one of our goals throughout this whole sort of pre-proposal process has been to have EPA develop standards that were consistent with the ongoing clean energy transition that members are leading and that supported that transition, didn't make it more complicated from a cost perspective, did not create unnecessary reliability challenges. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. On May 11th, The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency proposed standards for coal and natural gas-fired power plant emissions using Clean Air Act Section 111. Over the past 18 months, EEI has engaged constructively with EPA and outlined several important priorities for these regulations that are consistent with the ongoing clean energy transition that EEI's member companies are leading. On today's episode, Emily Fisher, EEI's Executive Vice President of Clean Energy and General Counsel, and Alex Bond, EEI's Deputy General Counsel of Clean Energy and Climate, will discuss the proposed rule, the potential implications for our member companies and their customers, and what comes next, knowing this is a proposal and that there will be many comments filed and discussions had before a final rule is released. So I'm going to turn it over to the experts. Emily and Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I think we're excited to be here to talk about 111. For us, this is the third time that EPA EPA is proposing standards under Section 111, and uh, we look forward to talking about some of our thoughts about what's been proposed and some early observations about what this rule might mean. But as Alex and I were preparing for this, we realized that we probably needed to sort of start at the beginning and talk a little bit about both the statute and what it requires and a little bit about the history of how we got here. So I'm going to start by asking Alex to remind us what does Section 111 of the Clean Air Act ask EPA to do? Thanks, Emily. Section 111 of the Clean Air Act requires that EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, determine what the best system of emissions reduction is. That is the BSER. And a fair warning to all of our listeners, this is this could become acronym heavy. Welcome to the Clean Air Act. Uh, EPA determines the BSER, and they can't they have to do that in a way that it shows that the technology that they're using is adequately demonstrated. That means a lot of different things, but the short version is EPA determines what BSER is and the standards that they set for individual units reflects the application of that BSER to those units. Now, Section 111 regulates new units. It also regulates existing units, and there's a different process for applying BSER for both of those. But the short version is EPA sets BSER and that's what gets applied to units. So I want to dive into just a couple of those things before we talk a little bit more about the proposal. You said 111 addresses both new and existing units. What part of the statute addresses new units and who actually sets the standards for new units? And really importantly, when are they applicable? So that is Section 111B, as in Bravo. Uh, That is what applies to new units. Here, EPA is proposing a 111B standard for new natural gas units. The specifics on how 111B works is it is EPA that applies those standards directly to units. And those standards are applicable upon proposal of the rule based on a quirk in the Clean Air Act. Usually, things are not applicable to people until the rule is final. In this case, 
because of the way the Clean Air Act works, they're applicable immediately upon proposal. So that means any unit that is constructed after the date that this rule appears in the Federal Register, those units would have to comply with these new 111B standards, even though we don't actually know what the final rule looks like yet. That's correct. And maybe it's worth saying that the Clean Air Act is quirky like that so that people don't hurry up and build new units to avoid new standards. Correct. So those of you that were rushing to to build something before a standard comes in, there's a hook for that in the Clean Air Act. So with respect to existing units, what's the process there and how is it different? That's section 111D as in Delta. We will skip 111C. You don't have to worry about it. You're welcome. 111D addresses existing units. That process is a little bit different. EPA, unlike for new units, where EPA is the one that applies the standard directly to a unit, for existing sources, EPA doesn't do a performance standard. They create a guideline that is then sent to the states. And the states are the one that then have to apply BSER to the units that are within the state's jurisdiction and that the rule is applicable to. So there is an additional step. We can talk about this a little bit later, and I think we will, but that is a very important step because states have a fairly big role to play in how any of this works. So I'm just going to underscore a couple of points and you tell me if I got this right or not. EPA has proposed standards under 111B for new units. They actually have proposed numerical standards that reflect the BSER for those units. And that standard is pretty much the same for all new units. Is that right? That's correct. All right. But what I think I heard you say about D units is that EPA comes up with the BSER, but then states have to figure out how that BSER is going to be reflected in standards for existing units on a a unit-by-unit basis. So it's a more bespoke process. Yes. And essentially what that means is that while you noted all new units will have the same standard, every existing unit will have a different standard based on the characteristics of that unit. So I know we're going to get into process before we're done, but that means if you're the owner or the operator of an existing unit, or just someone who's interested in what the standards might be for existing units, we actually won't know what those standards are until the states move forward after the rule is finalized. Right. We're several years out from knowing explicitly what those standards are going to be for each unit. Okay. That's super helpful background. I appreciate that. So you you started to hint at the kinds of units that are being regulated, and obviously there's that divide between new and existing. But could you tell us more specifically which units EPA is proposing to regulate? So this is one big proposal that is really three rules, as we referenced before, and I think that Brian did in the introduction. It's new units. The new unit proposal from EPA is for new natural gas units. So those are units larger than 25 megawatts uh, that utilize natural gas in a combustion turbine. However, there are two separate proposals. These are the guidelines for existing units that would go to the states. So hearkening back to what we just said, two-thirds of this proposal has a states as the primary regulator role. That would be for existing natural gas units, which are EPA is only regulating a subset of them, which are generally the larger gas units. And then existing coal units. So those are boilers primarily that, you know, utilize coal as a main fuel, although also they regulate some boilers that use natural gas. We don't have to go into the weeds on that, but just know it's basically regulating existing boilers, existing turbines, and new turbines. Great. I know that you fielded a lot of phone calls since this rule was proposed from members, generally around the concept of applicability, and that is like which units might be regulated going forward. And I I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of really detailed questions about applicability, and we will probably have to spend a lot of time 
in the future figuring that out. So if you read the rule and you're not 100% sure if the unit you own or operate or one that you're interested in is, is regulated, don't don't worry and maybe give us a call and we'll call EPA. You're in good company not knowing the answer to that. Yeah. So the rule's pretty complicated. Thanks for outlining which units are regulated. Let's dive into that a little bit more deeply. So um, I'm actually going to do these in a different order than the way that you explained them. I want to start with existing coal units. What's the the BSER that EPA has proposed? And then could you explain a little bit about the subcategory approach that EPA is taking for existing coal units? Happy to. So for existing coal units, the principal BSER that EPA proposes is the application of carbon capture and storage technology at a 90% clip. So a pretty big amount of carbon capture and removal from from an existing unit. EPA proposes that that can happen by 2030. And that's sort of the principal first mover for the rest of EPA's standards. Now, that said, EPA also proposes three separate subcategories beyond the CCS approach based on when a unit will retire. So if you retire by 2032, 2035, or 2040, before those dates, you'll have different standards based on when exactly your unit's going to come offline. And and those standards wouldn't necessarily require you to have a a CCS-based emissions limitation. Correct. EPA looks at it and says, hey, you know, there is a economic component to BSER, especially for existing units. And if your unit was going to retire anyways, installing an expensive technology on the front side might not make a lot of sense. As a result, you know, EPA was instead like, these units that will retire by certain dates can have a, a separate compliance, and a separate standard for them. That makes sense because when a unit retires, it no longer has emissions, right? So that represents a pretty big environmental step forward. I think that's a, a really important concept that was included in the the category of regulations for existing coal-based generation. I think we're probably going to spend a lot of time thinking about the mechanics of those subcategories, but I think that concept is really important. As you pointed out, um, there's an economic component to BSER, and we have members who have announced closures of coal-based units you know, toward the latter half of this decade and, and into the next decade. And you know, if they were required to retrofit uh, to UCCS, they might actually stay open longer. Right. And it might not be a solid investment if you're going to come offline only a couple of years after installation of a new technology, and that presents its own set of issues. I think the the interesting bit of this is this concept has been around in environmental law before. I think this is the most explicit EPA has ever really made it. So it's going to be really interesting to sort of see how the mechanics of that work and critically how that matches up with where the companies are going and some of the announcements that are not only on the books, but might be on the way in terms of planning. Great. And I'll say spoiler alert, maybe for a future podcast, EPA has proposed some coal closure subcategories and in one of the water rules. And so it'll be interesting to see how these these two different sets of closure subcategories line up. But before we go down that rabbit hole, let's talk about the proposal for new gas under Section 111B. So the new gas proposal comes in multiple phases. It's a choose-your-own-adventure novel on some level of technology. The original standard's based on an efficient unit. It's a pretty tight standard based on what we can tell from current operations of what the latest and greatest turbines can hit. However, what EPA then does is they set future-phased standards as part of this proposal based on the type of technology that gets utilized. There is a hydrogen pathway, so blending hydrogen in a turbine with natural gas at first 
a 30% and then a 96% blend out into the 2030s and 2032 and then in 2038. EPA also sets a different pathway, which is also based on CCS, like the coal standard is, only that would be applicable beginning in 2035. So units can sort of choose which route they would go, but underneath EPA's proposal, you'd have to choose one or the other. That's for large units, large natural gas units. Um, There are some smaller ones that we won't go into today that have a different pathway and approach from EPA. So I'm just going to repeat this to make sure I got it. So phase one of the standards is based on efficient generation. I'm actually going to use a number here. Um, They propose a range of 770 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour to 900, depending on whether or not you're a big or a small unit, for that phase one. And then phase two for CCS takes you all the way down to, is it 90? It is 90. 90 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour. And as you said, that would be effective starting in 2035. And if you chose the hydrogen pathway, you'd have a standard in 2032. I think that's 680? 680. Uh, pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour. And then in 2038, sort of not surprisingly, when you use the 96% capture rate for CCS, you get down to, as you would with the the hydrogen blending pathway, 90 90 pounds of of CO2 per megawatt hour. The the last page of the book is the same for both approaches. Got it. Okay. And I I thought it would be useful to actually talk about the numerical standards here, because these are the standards that A, are applicable immediately. And these are also the standards that EPA sets. So these are not our bespoke existing unit standards. So you would you do know kind of like what the trajectory is. Right. I think we'll probably come back and, and talk about some issues that are raised by EPA's approach and, and the standards themselves in a little bit. But let's now talk about EPA's proposal for existing natural gas-based combustion turbines under 111D. So what EPA has done for existing turbines, uh, of which there are quite a few out there, and they vary pretty substantially in terms of size, in terms of use, in terms of performance. What EPA has done here is they've looked at the, the broad array of existing natural gas turbines, and they've tried to limit where the standards would apply. And these are just like the coal units, existing source guidelines that states would then have to set individual unit standards. So EPA says, okay, there's a lot going on in the existing natural gas space. We're going to focus on the largest units that we can find. And they define those as units that are 300 megawatts or greater and units that operate at 50% capacity factors or higher. So in short, the big boys that run a lot are the ones that EPA is targeting for the existing source gas rule. And then for their BSER under the existing gas proposal, they basically go and grab the exact same BSER that we just talked about for new natural gas. So for a hydrogen blending pathway, it is a 30% blend by 2032 and a 96% blend in 2038. And for a CCS pathway, and remember this is for those large units that EPA is limiting this to, it is a CCS 90% capture by 2035. So different verse, same song, different verse, but for existing units. One thing that we didn't touch on in the discussion about natural gas combustion turbines is that most of what we were talking about is really going to be applicable to combined cycle units. There are separate proposals for simple cycle units. I think those are getting a lot of attention But in general, could you just outline sort of EPA's approach both for new and existing combustion turbines? 
Yeah. So for the smaller units, the combustion turbines that operate, oftentimes they op- they, they basically operate to provide grid services and to incorporate renewable assets uh, since they can get up to load pretty quickly. And that's important when you're dealing with intermittent and variable resources. What EPA does, and, and it's fairly complex, and it's not entirely clear at all times which standards would apply to which types of units, they mostly look at them in, from the new source standard, and they allow them to utilize clean fuels or set a higher emissions rate than we talked about. So uh, they're 1,150 pounds uh, with maybe some future hydrogen blending for some subsets of units down to 1,000 pounds or a limitation of only running 20% of the time for those smaller simple cycle combustion turbines, mostly under the theory that these units are smaller, they are not as heavy intensive in terms of capital, and also they provide sort of very intensive grid services, especially for reliability and to incorporate higher amounts of renewables onto the grid. So they serve a fundamentally different purpose compared to the the large combined cycle units. I, I appreciate that. I think that's a hard part of the rule to read. And EPA seems to have a real preference and would like people, if they were to be building new natural gas-based generation, they really want to push folks to NGCCs. And, and I, I think that's an interesting observation that what we see is a lot of members also really legitimately considering new simple cycle combustion turbines or aeroderivative turbines. And I, I think the rule's a little bit stressed out about what to make of all of that. Yeah, it's, it's not clear exactly how that's going to play out. So we've tried to outline the standards without getting too detailed or too complicated. Sometimes we failed at that because the rule is pretty complicated. But I wanted to just sort of talk to you about some of our early observations. I think we're, you know, just a little bit over a week in to this process. And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, how is this different from what we've seen before from other 111 proposals. And and in particular, I think it might be useful uh, if you reflected on what the Supreme Court said last summer about how EPA is supposed to be using its 111 authority. Happy to. As we said earlier, this is the third try. Going back to the first try, you'd have to go back to to 2014. I still had hair then. It was crazy. But when you went through the 2014 rule, EPA eventually proposed what became the Clean Power Plan. And the Clean Power Plan took a system-wide approach to setting BSER. I know we just talked about how this is a really unit-specific inquiry. The, the first one of these sort of took the opposite tack, and it started really broad and sort of moved forward from there. That was incredibly controversial and went through multiple phases of litigation. After the CPP came the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which took a 180-degree turn in terms of its interpretation of BSER. One thing led to another. All of this wound up in the Supreme Court, and we had a uh, the Supreme Court came out with a decision last summer in a case called... West Virginia versus EPA. So this would have been June of 2022. Oh, it was like July 1st. July. Oh, yeah, that's, that's that, right. That's a date that I remember. I, I should remember that. It's Claire's birthday. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> the, the Supreme Court came out with a decision in which there were a boatload of issues raised across two rulemakings and over seven years of litigation. Essentially, what the Supreme Court said was, okay, you can't take a system-wide approach. If you're going to regulate under Section 111, you, EPA, have to stay quote, inside the fence line. You have to regulate at the unit. The Supreme Court said a bunch of other things to EPA, but that was the big takeaway, which is that if you're going to regulate under 111, you've got to stay at the facility at the unit. And that is partially why you see in these three rules that EPA has proposed today, a focus at at the unit style controls. That's why we have a focus on carbon capture, on using hydrogen, on focusing on setting unit specific standards, right? So that's why you see those things in this proposals today. Yeah, I 
I think it's interesting, you know, the word best system of emission reduction led EPA, you know, way back in 2014, 2015 to talk about shifting generation from fossil sources to to zero emitting resources. And, and that was really what the Supreme Court took issue with. That case is important for a lot of reasons, but for purposes of actual 111 regulations, they are within the fence line. So that's one way in which this is different. I think another interesting way in which it's different is what is EPA most concerned with? And how is that different from 2014? I think that's part of this, is that that was 2014 and today it's 2023, right? So we are nine years down the road. It's been quite a journey since then. And the industry has made a whole boatload of progress between 2014 and 2023. So from a policy perspective, from an emissions perspective, from a clean energy perspective, the industry is pretty different today than when EPA started the sort of 111 journey, right? So I think that's important to acknowledge that emissions have gone down across the industry. We're 36% below 2005 levels as of today. We're well past, I think, the targets that the Clean Power Plan had set for the industry. So things are sort of practically different. I think the other thing that is interesting is because of that, in large part, and because of the ongoing clean energy transition, and a lot of the plans that member companies have announced, EPA has shifted its focus in the Clean Power Plan, and then also to a large degree in the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. The focus was really heavily on coal, right? It's what is going on with the coal fleet. How exactly is that going to be regulated? What can be done? And now I I think if you look, I mean, two thirds of this rule is about natural gas, and EPA spends a lot of effort on the gas side of both of these rulemakings. That's really where the focus has shifted to from EPA. It's really focusing on new natural gas and then trying to grapple with what to do with the existing gas fleet. Part of that is this is the third try at the coal fleet, right? So it's a little bit more well-trod ground. But EPA is focusing on gas here. And also, gas continues to play a really important role in the power sector. So making sure that that is done right, whatever your definition of right is, is really why it's getting focused on by EPA. I think the other interesting thing in terms of what's sort of changed from this rule for previous ones, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, the role of the states is significantly different here, whereas the Clean Power Plan tried to get everybody into you know, model rule regimes and the Affordable Clean Energy Rule tried to really limit what you could even do at any individual plant. This is much more of a, hey, send us something kind of rule from EPA. And, and that's that really provides a much bigger role for states uh, and a much bigger, bigger role for states in implementation, especially. And so that's a pretty market shift. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that both the Clean Power Plan and the ACE rule were much more prescriptive about what states could do. And there seems to be a lot of latitude here, although I guess I would put an asterisk by that. So far. So far, right. And that EPA does want states to, if if they are going to do different things or look at compliance flexibilities, they're going to want a pretty significant demonstration that the emissions reductions are being achieved, even if you're accomplishing that in a different way. But, you know, there's not going to be any federal implementation plan here that states could borrow from. It, it kind of seems like maybe they're a little bit on their own. I think that's a fair way of reading it. So I think those are pretty salient differences. And certainly, you know, in the run-up to this rulemaking, we spent a lot of time talking to EPA about the role of natural gas and making sure that the standards would allow us to build new natural gas that we might need for resource adequacy and for reliability. But we were also really clear, I think, that we understood that the role of natural gas was going to evolve over time. Uh, We actually talked a lot about both CCS and hydrogen and how those could play a future role in reducing emissions from both new and existing natural gas-based units. So this leads me to another set of observations, which is, you know, EPA 
is using technologies, CCS and hydrogen blending, as BSER and is making some statements about their current and future availability. And I think that raises some interesting questions. I think that's right. I I think, you know, EPA has taken a lot of care to go back to the previous conversation to really focus on regulating at the unit, right? And to really focus on technology as opposed to broad concepts of of systems or, you know, really hyper-specific approaches like they did in the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. From a legal perspective, EPA focuses at the unit here, but it's also not entirely clear that, you know, the standard, the phase standards, the future focus approach necessarily is, you know, completely in line with what some folks might think the statute does, right? So it's it's interesting. One of the conversations that has become immediately apparent is if you're taking rules that are available today, that's one thing. If you're projecting into the future, that's a completely different inquiry. What exactly is EPA's record for that? What is their basis for that? I think that's something that's going to get explored pretty heavily during the comment period. And the other thing to focus on from the the legal side of of the House is as EPA goes ahead and really makes a bunch of projections out into the future, what does that really practically do for units that are going to be changing how they operate in the system over the course of the coming years? Is that really something that EPA can say with enough authority? It's not entirely clear today. Yeah, I think we're really interested and we have a lot of member companies that are working on the adequate demonstration of hydrogen blending and and of CCS. But I think at least our work to date hasn't demonstrated that these are available at cost and at scale right now. And I think it's hard to predict when that might be true. And I, I, I certainly think about all of the funding, for example, that was included in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act for demonstrating CCS, for trying to create the the different elements of a hydrogen economy. I guess I'll note that in the rule, EPA assumes that we can build the attendant infrastructure that would be needed to support widespread deployment of CCS and hydrogen on fairly aggressive timescales, including new CO2 and hydrogen pipelines. And, and I'll just note that, you know, we don't even know who regulates hydrogen pipelines in the U.S. They don't necessarily fit neatly within the Natural Gas Act, so it's not clear that FERC has that authority. I think the same could be said about CO2 pipelines. And neither one of those technologies is really going to work for the power sector without that other infrastructure. So I think there's some some interesting questions about relying on on CCS and hydrogen blending and, and making some future projections. I guess I'll also note that you know the Clean Air Act itself, at least Section 111B, which as you explained is for new units, actually has EPA reviewing whether or not they should set revised standards every eight years or at least every eight years. So a rule that projects into the future well beyond that eight-year review period seems complicated. It certainly is. And that's one of the conversations that we've been having with EPA over the past 18 months is we're incredibly supportive of the technologies that EPA has identified here. Like, as you noted, we have, I think it's actually easier to identify members that are not part of a hydrogen hub proposal than those that have done it. Um, We have a lot of members that are trying actively to deploy carbon capture technology across sort of their fleets. So those are things that people are really actively working on today. I think it's a question of, is it ready to set a standard on yet? That's a question that I think is going to come out through the comment period as people bring information, you know, as part of that process. And that's something that EPA is going to have to work through 
basically just on a factual and record basis. Like that's a factual policy question for the agency. I think the other interesting part of that is, as you noted, there is a, a chance for EPA to come back here. And and this is, it's the third time we've gone through this set of rules. Um, but the natural gas, the 111B, the new source standard, this is their, their second one. There already is one that's out there and operating today, right? So this is not the first time the agency has come back. There's a role for this of once something is demonstrated, EPA can always come back and be like, well, that's the technology now. And that's sort of the, you know, for a lot of folks, if you look at the structure of 111, which is a technology-based standard for all covered sources, that seems to make sense to people, right? When something is demonstrated, then it's time to roll it out. I think the question is whether or not it's demonstrated today. And there's a lot of questions about that. Yeah, so that we've had sort of a, a conversation where that mixes technical questions and legal questions. But I think that's one of the observations I have is that the the focus on technologies that are in process but maybe not commercially deployable yet raises both both legal and technical questions. And as you pointed out, I think those will be discussed pretty heavily in the comment period. So Alex, where are we in the process of this rulemaking? We're at the part where we haven't started yet. Um, so we're waiting for EPA to publish the proposal in the Federal Register in the next couple of weeks at which point the public will have 60 days to comment. And that that's the part of the process where everyone evaluates the rules and they submit a lot of legal and technical uh, and other policy issues and concerns that the agency should will have to take into account as it moves towards a final rule. Uh, one of the things that we're focused on is providing a lot of that technical feedback to the agency. This is a complicated rule. And where we see things where, hey, maybe EPA didn't get this quite right, we're going to offer a solution as part of that. It's, it's, it's not a, hey, that doesn't work. It's a, hey, that didn't work. How have you you thought of maybe doing it this way instead as part of that that process for us. Once the comment period closes, EPA will have to respond to all of those comments, take into account what people have said, maybe issue supplemental proposals, maybe not, move towards getting a rule final by next spring summer. I, I think it's about a June uh, or so timeline. Is that what they said? I think in the rule, uh, EPA projected that it might finalize the rule in uh, June of 2024. Right. So so, so they'll, they'll have to move forward, respond to all those comments, make whatever changes that they want to make to the rules, finalize all of it, finalize some of it, uh, finalize none of it. They won't choose that option. But, you know, moving forward, like they'll, they'll do all of those, then they'll finalize that rule, they'll sign it, and then they'll publish it in the Federal Register, at which point, if tradition holds, there's a race to the courthouse by a number of different stakeholders. And then, you know, the litigation process plays out. But on an equivalent and sort of equal timeline, EPA has set up this process for states to implement the rule, to submit plans to the agency uh, by that 2026 deadline, and then move forward. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out in parallel with, uh, with some probably high stakes litigation at the same time. Yeah, so states will have to be designing plans while the litigation is sort of proceeding on a parallel path. And I think states have about two years to come up with the plans for regulating existing units. That's right. EPA gave states more time than they have in the past to do that, given going back to what we talked about at the start of this, the real complexity of establishing unit by unit standard for hundreds and hundreds of sources. So th that's a big job. Yeah, it might almost seem that two years might not be enough, but that's a conversation for a different day. I think we've tried our best to outline uh, the sort of high-level contours of the rule. Do you have any other observations uh, before we close out this conversation? The only other observation um, that I'll make is, and you alluded to it earlier, is that this is one of a, a big suite of rules that EPA is rolling out as part of uh, Administrator Regan's holistic approach to the power sector. What we're trying to, to think through is how does this work? How do these three rules work together? 
I think that's an important part of this, which is making sure that regulations for new and existing gas and existing coal all make sense for where the sector is going and for the transition that's underway. And then how do those three rules interact with a whole bunch of other environmental rules that have been proposed for water, air, and waste, right? So making sure that this entire suite of rules hangs together and makes sense for where the sector is going, that's a priority for us, but that's that's a much bigger conversation. Yeah, and I guess if I had an observation... You know, one of our goals throughout this whole sort of pre-proposal process has been to have EPA develop standards that were consistent with the ongoing clean energy transition that members are leading and that supported that transition, didn't make it more complicated from a cost perspective, did not create unnecessary reliability challenges. And I think that's the lens through which we're going to continue to review the rule. As a result of that, I think there are parts of the rule or structures that EPA has included in the rule that I think are really important because they recognize the ongoing transition. I think those coal closure subcategories, even if we're not entirely in love with exactly how they function, you know, we might not like all the dates or the some of the standards for the units in those subcategories. There, that exist the existence of that concept, I think, is really important. The idea that you shouldn't make investments in units that you're going to close is important. And and I think the fact that they recognize that those units are going to operate this decade is pretty important because as we've seen recently, we are still relying on some of these resources, particularly in times of of peak demand and in emergencies. And I I think we all want to make sure that we have a successful, reliable clean energy transition. And we know how difficult it is right now to bring on new generation. So I think that's an important structure. And it's one that I think we're going to have to spend some time defending because I think a lot of other folks might not be uh, enamored of it. To say that is not universally loved is an understatement. Yeah. So there's that. So we have the sort of the challenge of trying to improve upon and protect elements of the rule that might be useful to members going forward, but then also trying to tweak some of the technical challenges we see. You know, we, we mentioned very briefly the 770 pounds per megawatt hour standard for new natural gas. You know, that phase one standard is based on efficiency. I think that's appropriate. As you, I think, alluded to, that does not give folks a lot of operational headroom. And if you're cycling a new NGCC, that might be a tougher standard to meet. So I think there are some technical issues we got to work through on some of those things, some things that need to be fixed. And then I think there are some really hard issues about adequate demonstration and new technologies that we're going to have to spend some more time thinking about. But you know, our goal right now is to look at the whole rule through that lens. Can we do affordable, reliable, clean, consistent with our clean energy transition? and engage constructively in the process. So I know that um, you and me and our broader environment team at EEI, we're going to be digging into lots of these issues in a lot more detail and spending a lot of time with member companies so that we can submit comments sometime later this summer. One way or or the other. We'll see. And uh, maybe we'll be back later to talk about what those comments looked like and what, what some of the issues we decided to raise were. So... Um, Brian, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about this rule. We're probably going to talk about it some more, but this was a fun first dive into the proposal. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Emily. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening. And come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.